compost is one of those things that's a lot simpler than most of us think it is. And if we could do one thing with this podcast, I think it would be to convince people that everybody should be composting, especially people who don't have a garden. Welcome to Longleaf Breeze. Beginners learning subsistence farming using three simple principles. Approaching but never reaching subsistence. It's got to be fun while we're doing it. And we don't make allness statements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden. Thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast of September 15, 2010. You're right about compost, Lee. I just never would have thought it would be as simple as it is. Uh, not to say that we didn't have our adventures, which we have described in previous podcasts about keeping um, big critters who want to share in the bounty um, <laughs> out of out of the compost pile. But like uh, possums and foxes, foxes and yeah, crows yeah, and, yeah, that's right. But uh, other than that, it really is pretty simple. And uh, people think we're crazy because, you know, forget doggy bags coming home from a, a restaurant. We bring a compost bag. If it's not something we want to eat, we <laughs> don't want to waste it. We want it in our compost pile. We sure do. And I guess this came up because you and I attended a workshop recently where there was a lot of conversation about compost, and both of us were struck by all the rules that people want to issue about compost, most of which we're breaking. Well, right. not most of what, many of which we are breaking, yeah. and it seems to be working fine. So um, I guess my point about everybody should be composting is even if you're not maintaining a garden, you know someone who is. And if, if you will go to the trouble to maintain a compost pile, then whoever you know who is a gardener will be grateful to you. Um, so I, I hope that you will consider creating a, a compost pile. And obviously you've you don't necessarily want to do it the way we do it because we go to a great deal of trouble to secure it from critters um, so we can put things like chicken bones and meat scraps and that sort of thing in it. If you don't want to go to that trouble, and most people don't, the easy way to avoid the problem is just not to put meat scraps in it. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, we won't go into the um, particulars, the details right now about our the, the few rules that we do have, for example, we don't put pickler in, in there, you know, something that's been, that's true, that's had an herbicide used on it because we don't want to kill off our veg when we plant it using the compost. So there are some things and we do things to not harbor diseases and insects from previous crops in it. But um, by and large, it gets good and hot in there. The critters, the good little critters break it down and it's, it's perfectly safe. So um, and, and there are some, I guess one of the things that we are careful about is, um, I won't say it's a, I know you said there's a list of do's and don'ts, musts and must nots, but, um, that, that too many people adhere to. But I do think, uh, we want to hasten to say that we don't do things like put raw, like you wouldn't have an onion, a recognizable banana peel or onion peel out on our, next to a vegetable that I'm planting. Because that burns the veg. Correct. So and and we do consumes let it break nitrogen down. in the process of yeah. breaking down. What we probably should do is just talk through briefly the process that we use. We have a canister that sits on the counter here in the kitchen. 
whenever we have anything compostable, we put it in there. And periodically, probably two or three times a day, we take that out to the compost pile, which is very close to the door of our apartment, so we can get to it easily and quickly. And that makes a lot of difference. It makes a keep huge it close. difference. Yeah. If it were a long way from the door, then we would probably not be as diligent as we are about composting. That pile just stacks up. We don't turn it. We don't flip it. We don't disturb it in any way other than when it gets on our nerves that it smells, we put a little hay on top so it won't smell. And we do work to keep it moist. And that's real important to keep your compost moist. Um, and then when it's um, stacked up for a while, we move that pile up the hill and then start turning it aggressively and keeping it moist. And within a matter of weeks after we move it up the hill, it's finished compost without all of those onions in it, and it's ready to use on the yeah. on Veg yeah. Hill. Um, and I guess this came up not only because of our attending the workshop recently, but also because yesterday, somehow I got it in my mind, it was time, and I moved the compost pile. So it's sort of fresh on our minds right now. Right. And, and one reason we don't have to worry about the foxes and the crows and whatnot once you've moved it, is so much of it is broken down that they are no longer looking for what's in that. They don't see like a That's chicken true. bone in there. They and just... it's freshly turned, so there's a lot of broken down compost. The, the, On the top, right. That's that's mixed in with a few pieces of food that remain, and it's not sufficiently attractive to critters now. So I, I don't think there will be any problem. Yeah. Well, good. And so um, now we do have a separate compost pile for the human year. You want to talk about that briefly? I know you've talked about that on We've talked about it some in the past and don't need to belabor it. Uh, I'll just say that we keep a separate pile that is nothing but human manure. And recently we've decided we're going to put into it some of the weeds that have come from Veg Hill. Yeah, not just weeds. Uh, this is one thing that I've been very concerned about, and I just alluded to that. that I do have some plants that I know are diseased out there on Veg Hill. And I definitely, a lot of them have been damaged by insects. Some of these insects can actually um, deposit larvae that can winter over. So I'm paranoid about preserving, if you will, uh, those negatives um, in my compost to then ladle on a, a future garden. So um, in consulting with my master gardener expert, Mallory, last week, she... Um, just said if, if it gets hot enough, if your compost gets hot enough, it's going to kill those things. And that just make sure I've gone a full year, like don't use it till next fall. But what we decided rather than keep a, for us, rather than keep a separate compost pile for that long, a third one, it would be a third one for us, that we're just going to put those kinds of scraps that might have bug larvae, that might have um, some kind of... Uh, fungus on the plant, whatever it might be, in with the humanure compost pile. And that is a two-year composting process. So we know that by the time we got ready to use that on ornamentals, as we've said before, we don't use that on our vegetables, um, even though it would be safe. We just don't want to, to run the risk of um, grossing anybody out to, mm -hmm. if they ever said, what was that originally? <laughs> um, so we, we have plenty of ornamentals around here and uses for it. But we're just going to put the scraps from the garden that might be infected with something and the humanure in one. And then after two years, 
correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, everything's broken down then. Well, that plus the fact that the humanure pile is designed to create an environment where the thermophiles feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. The thermophilic composting process creates very high levels of heat. So we fully expect uh, all of those weed seeds and bug larvae and so forth would be killed by the thermophilic process. And then we let it sit for two years, and I think you'll be fine yeah, by yeah. then. So as far as how we're going to use all this compost, just to sum up, the, the main compost pile where most of the table scraps go, et cetera, and a, a clearly healthy plant, or like when I shell peas, uh, pea shells or, you know, uh, a watermelon that might be looking weird out in the field. That's a, We could have a whole podcast about the uh, <laughs> the, the product of uh, some volunteers that appeared in the compost from last year. But, but it's probably worth mentioning now, and I agree with you, we ought to talk about that sometime. But the, the long and short of it is we've determined that compost volunteers are not all they're cracked up to be. Right. We probably want to avoid compost volunteers. As a food future. source, as a source of additional organic matter for your compost, oh, they're great. They're great. <laughs> I mean, we'll cut up a watermelon that's six inches in diameter, and, and you, the, the key is you cut it open and it's all white in there. It's just not a watermelon anymore. Um, it's some other thing. But it's not dangerous or poisonous. It's, got, it's full of organic matter. So we just put those babies in the compost, and, and it adds yeah. to the... And what's Matter. fascinating to me is you've learned to recognize them even before you cut them up. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you several times say, I suspect this one will be white. And sure enough, um, it yeah, is. Yeah, I'm learning. So, uh, you know, we do have big plans for that compost and, uh, of course, the humanure for the ornamentals. Well, um, we have a big project coming up, we hope, later this week if our row covers come in. Um, maybe I should set this up by saying... Um, and, of course, the project being that we are going to put a row cover over my most recent planting of fall veg. Row six. Row six. The reason for it is that I had put all these lovely little tender transplants out there, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, lettuce, and um, cabbage. And systematically, the grasshopper critters are eating them. So uh, it sort of like reminds me of biblical times uh, when a plague of locusts would come through. <laughs> I feel as if you can even hear those creatures. It really does remind me of that. So um, we decided after consulting with a master gardener expert that um, a row cover might be our best uh, defense. So anyway, you want to talk a little bit about our plan for how we're going to do it? Our plan is to drive three-eighths inch rebar into the ground on either side of the row at four-foot intervals and to bend a piece of half-inch PVC so that it creates a hoop that extends over the row at each of those four-foot intervals. And then we will place a very sheer fabric on top of those hoops and weight it down with firewood on either side so that we have a fabric barrier between the plants and those grasshoppers you love so much. Yeah. Uh, everything is in place now uh, for us to install those hoops. We're just, we just need to make sure the fabric gets here, and we're a little concerned because we've not heard from Johnny C. They're the people who are sending us the fabric. So 
So later today, you're going to call and Later today, I will be calling and tr trying to make sure that that fabric is on its way to us. And you had this idea for securing the uh, <laughs> fabric with clothespins. You want to talk about that? I had this great idea. that I, You know, I saw it on the Internet where a guy built or made clothespins that he clipped around the fabric and around the PVC pipe as a way of holding everything in place. Big clothespins, we should. These are oversized, oversized clothespins. Yeah. That's right. A normal clothespin is like three and a half inches long, and these are like six inches long. And he was he cut them himself, and I started cutting a clothespin uh, using ordinary white pine. It didn't just crack; it exploded when I was trying to work with that small a piece. And even after I could, even if I could figure out how to cut the wood, I was not confident that the clothespin would have enough gripping power or would be easy enough to open when you needed to to make it work. So uh, you've agreed to to just go with firewood on either side oh, of the fine. row yeah. instead of trying to mess with the clothespins, which is a relief to me. <laughs> yeah, one less construction project. Right. So, well, We've we... attended several workshops, including the one where we talked about row covers, but uh, maybe we ought to sort of run through the what we've done lately. Well, uh, yeah, we, we've, of course, continued to enjoy our Master Gardener classes and last time the session was on vegetable planting and next time it's on fruit culture so it's right it's very timely and by the way i this. finished reading my material yesterday nah, 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 nah. well i'm going to finish mine this afternoon <laughs> uh, but anyway uh, we also had a couple of outings this past week uh two of them in conjunction with master gardener at one was a work day so we learned a lot and we also got some cuttings that mm -hmm. they didn't want in their garden it was time to cut back and pull up and we benefited from that. Well, I guess the jury's out on whether or not my planting was successful. We'll let you know about that. But, hey, if it's not successful, we'll learn something. That's so. right. But on Sunday, uh, what we did that was not a Master Gardener activity, it was actually uh, Petals from the Past, which we've mentioned before, um, in Jemison or near Jemison, Alabama. Uh, we attended a, a fruit tree workshop, and it was a, a tour. Arlie Powell led a tour um, preceded by a lecture about the different fruits, and we had a chance to taste and sample all kinds of apples, pears, kiwi, muscadines, and uh, and some things, you know, persimmons, that kind of thing, pomegranates. So, uh, but of course, the apples and the pears were the big hits in my mind. And the, uh, oh, and those oh, muscadines. Oh, and the muscadines. and the kiwi. So we're all pumped now about increasing our... Um, Increasing the size of our orchard, but more importantly, increasing the variety of plants that we put out there. That's true. And just before we move on to the idea that we have to take advantage of what we learned with Arlie, I want to uh, talk about one of the requirements for completing the Master Gardener program uh, being a, that you satisfy a requirement to provide 50 hours of service. Right. It is startling to us how easy it has been to begin accumulating hours. So I don't think we'll have any trouble completing 50 hours. No, I it's think we got 13 this past we weekend. We got 13 already. With all so. of, and including Monday when we spent four hours at a work day. So, yeah, and it's fun. I mean, I've learned a lot. I, I, can't, I don't begrudge anything that we're doing. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun, and we've learned a lot and also feel like we're helping. So Yeah, yeah. 
But anyway, the, um, the and and luckily, what we're doing with the pedals from the past activity just fits right in. It dovetails nicely um, because we'll be that much smarter now about fruit orchards. We certainly hope so. And we'll be able to volunteer and help even more with Master Gardener on that. But let's talk some about our ideas for expanding the orchard. And, and maybe we should preface that by saying we do have the existing fruit trees in a configuration where they get full sun. Um, it's not level, but it's a rolling hill side. Mm -hmm. it's, there's no drop off. And if you've listened to these podcasts before, you know that we do worry about drop-offs here because we have such hilly land. We are um, indeed hilly. Great so. views, but lousy uh, when you're looking for <laughs> and we have flat to be space. ever so careful about erosion. Yeah, in everything we do. Yeah, so uh, we could expand the existing orchard and cut down some more trees, but it would it might leave us vulnerable to erosion, particularly in some of those spots, and uh, take out some kind of pleasant areas right around there. So anyway, talk about your idea of where we could expand. I was down there spreading topsoil on the extension of row six and row seven to prepare for your planting those perennials that you planted yesterday afternoon. And I just got to thinking about the area to the south of Veg Hill. We've always thought of it as a pretty sharp drop-off once you get to the south end of Veg Hill. But as I reflected on it, it, I'm not sure it's that sharp a drop-off. So now what we're thinking about, and I, and I do need to caution that this is not a decision we've made. This is something we're going to be mulling over in the next few days. If, if we're going to do it, it's going to happen pretty quickly. But if uh, what we, we're thinking about doing is clearing a section of land to the south of Veg Hill and on either side of it, so that we would be able to add a row of trellised apples and pears, a row of trellised muscadines and kiwis, and a row of blueberries, all down south of Edge Hill. It would require taking down a good many trees. Yeah. But as we were looking at them yest yesterday, we don't see any real nice specimen trees that would have to come down except one good-sized hickory that we would need to bring down. Yeah. We, we hate that, but yeah. once we do that, we're talking about the rest of it as sort of scrub. So um, it's tempting yeah. to open that up. And the nice thing about using that approach is we would end up with a full orchard that is in full sun unambiguously. And we're planning to fence that in with deer fence. We would fence it with deer fence. We would have it drip irrigated. We would have it secured um, so that it could be protected. So more about that in the future. We'll keep yeah. you posted. Um, I shared it with you yesterday, and I, I guess I was thinking that this is something we would do within the next two or three years. And in typical Amanda fashion, you said, okay, we'll need to plant this fall. <laughs> Well, because those trees need time to grow and start producing. So. And so what we're talking about doing now, if we do follow through on your timetable, is we've got a clear, we've got a fence, we've got a drip, we've got a plant. All this fall, while we're doing Master Gardener, while we're doing Education for Ministry. So 
So it's going to be an interesting season if we do yeah, that. Yeah, if we do. So anyway, like I said, more to come. Well, have a great week, everyone. See you next week. You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden. We'd love to hear from you. You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Or you can send us honest-to-goodness mail at P.O. Box 780-446, Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the Daily Farm Log, check in with Lee and Amanda, and talk with other listeners. That's longleafbreeze.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.